From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So before we start the episode tonight, we do have a request for you. Our first episode in October will be our one-year anniversary, which oh we are God. so excited about. It's so wild, and we want to celebrate with you guys. So do you have a fun story to tell us about a movie that we've covered that traumatized you as a kid? Are you a former, potentially a future guest, and your film was already taken? Or do you just want to tell us hi and that we're badasses? I mean, obviously, but we like to hear it from you. Um, if so, please send us a short audio clip and we might include it and talk about it in our one year anniversary episode. Yeah. Instructions and the link to the Google submission form will be included in our show notes all September. And if you are following us on our Twitter account, we're on, which is at Scarred Podcast, we are talking about it uh, all the time. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And on with the show. <laughs> I hear you laughing, Terry. Like, what the f- I was just thinking of manga tentacle porn. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, God. Somebody please think 
And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is musician, actor, and screenwriter Sean Keller. You know him as the screenwriter for the Dario Argento film Giallo, as well as last year's Into the Dark episode, All That We Destroy. He's also an accomplished musician, and his new Halloween album, Revenge of the Killer Sounds of Halloween, comes out tomorrow. Oh, also, did we mention that he wrote our kick-ass theme song? We don't (laughs) say that enough. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. On on episode 50, is it? Yes. 50. 50. Episode 50. And this was not planned. This was not planned at all. I know. It's so cool. And he wrote our song like a year ago. Isn't that wild? Time is fake. (laughs) Yeah, it really what is, because it feels like a decade ago and also a minute ago. Like, I don't... Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, it just it seems like just yesterday that we were like, uh, how do we podcast? Uh, what do we do with music? Like, and now we're it's a year and we're chatting wow. with you. It's, yeah. a, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But before we get into, like, the now, how, how did you first get into horror? Oh, man. I think being a Catholic. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not even but like, like that's remotely so, but like, joking. That's true. Like that's 100 percent true. Well, well, I mean the the whole time I would sit in mass uh, as a young boy, we were pretty Catholic and pretty you know, not strict strict about being Catholic, but kind of strict about other stuff. I was in the middle of five kids, and so I had a very early mm. bedtime. Uh, things were very controlled, just for my parents' sanity, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. But and so you couple that with going to church on Sundays. And it's a lot of like kneeling, which is uncomfortable. And so you're you're supposed yeah. to like embrace pain. And and the the sermons were always just boring, boring, boring. But I would look up at the crucifix, and we had this really big crucifix in a rather humdrum blah church. So it was it just pulled focus. And it, you know he was like nine feet tall, and you know this ripped naked dude bleeding with like a really yeah. kind of orgiastic look on his face <laughs> with these really gruesome wounds. Uh, it 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 gives mixed messages, you know. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it sure makes, does. It makes you question a lot of things, and then uh, <laughs> you get into the doctrine of it all, and and you know, being told that the transubstantiation actually does turn that little communion wafer of of bread or puffed rice or whatever the shit it is uh, into the body of Christ. So to be a proper Catholic, you have to be a cannibal. You have to believe that you're eating flesh uh and, and also like, drinking okay, blood you're and drinking blood and this is yeah you're a vampire you're a cannibal it, it's it's very uh very dark and it sort of just mm-hmm. leans into gothic i mean the the best churches yeah. look like awesome gothic mansions and so that really pushed me in a big way into sort of a fascination mm. with pain and blood uh and and all mm. those things and it really got me into horror when i started seeing like the omen and things like that. Those religious oh, horrors really scared yeah. the shit oh, yeah. out of me. Um, I was I was terrified that they were real um, because I knew that mm. you know I loved you know Halloween and I loved the Universal monsters and all that stuff, but they weren't real. They were you know they were dudes in suits and nothing looked particularly scary. They were they were nice tragic tales that I really love, but not scary. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea of oh the devil's gonna get me well. Everyone in my fucking household reinforced that, you know, uh, my grandma wanted me to be a priest. And I was like thinking about oh, it for wow. a minute because I'm like, oh, I could totally be one of those priests that fights the devil. You know, like uh, that seemed like, that seemed like job aspiration. Um, and so uh, that that really pushed me into horror. And of course, then once you have an awakening and realize that none of this is true, then it really <laughs> leads into even darker shit. And so, uh, yeah, it's sort of there's a really simple step from 
uh, devout Catholicism to Clive Barker. You know, uh, there really is, and it's a very it's, small step. It's and a it's very like, small step. It's a very small step, and you get there. I'm a very similar. I had a very similar upbringing where my dad believed in demons and all this stuff, and I was like, <laughs> I like still in my back of my head, like. I know, but I still like get scared of them. So it's like hammered into my subconscious as a as a as a Catholic child. Yeah, and that did it. You know, it was that yeah. coupled with with Halloween because because for mm. me, uh, with a somewhat strict household, uh, Halloween was one of the only nights that I got to go outside. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, I had a very early. I was in bed at by seven thirty p.m. as oh. a kid up until like eight nine years old. Oh wow! And wow. so the idea of being out at, in the dark was thrilling, and I could only do it once a year. And also, I could not be myself. I could, you know, yeah. Yeah. reinvent. And so all those like things in my personality about reinvention really came out of that night. And so I fell in love with it. I hated those, you know, hokey costumes that had like the beautifully uh, wrought face and then a shitty plastic suit that had the, the creature's name written on it. I'm like, Frankenstein <laughs> didn't have his name written on his chest. I don't want that, mom. And she's like, then make your own. And so I was making my own costumes from like, you know, seven years old on because I was just a finicky, like, screen correct cosplay nerd in the <laughs> 1970s i love it so much oh i love that yeah because this is the 70s i grew up you know before cable and before uh yeah v8 vcrs they didn't fucking exist i mean cable existed in some rich ass neighborhoods but not in mine yeah and so i had no concept of any of that so it was just what i got through media you know regular tv and books and it was all about books and i could never get to the tv with my two older sisters so i spent mm. a lot of time in my room with records so that's where the musician oh. in me came out, but also with spooky records, the Disney's <laughs> thrilling, chilling sounds of the haunted house, yes. and, you know, penguin records and all these, all these, uh, Pickwick, uh, they, they put out all these great spooky things. And then there were these book and records, you know, like they had the, the, the haunted mansion book and record where it played some yes, of the they song. Did. I had one of those. And, and I even had like a, a Zach Schildwacker recently gave me my favorite old book and record from a kid when I was a kid. That was the, um. G.I. Joe and the Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. And oh, it was wow. a oh my Peter Pan record. And so it had like horror in it and action and all the things I love. Uh, and it taught me how to read. I read by listening to the record and reading the book. And, you know, those things were how I spent my time as a kid. So that that comes out kind of clearly in my like mixed media weirdness that I love, you know, writing and I love music and I love acting and all the performing, and all the escape and all that. They're all sort of like a big stew. And that's that's what horror was to me. <laughs> The stew of Sean Keller. Yeah, man. <laughs> so what were a few of your favorite horror movies growing up? Um, I loved, loved, loved the Universal Monsters because they were okay. they mm-hmm. were just tragic. They were so I always felt so sad for them. I've totally mm-hmm. like instantly uh, felt a kinship with the wolf man. I'm like, yeah, I could just mm. burst out and murder someone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> uh, and so those I really loved. And the creature from the Black Lagoon really hit me hard. Mm. Um, I was I saved up several birthdays worth of money to buy a rubber Don Post creature from the Black Lagoon mask when I was seven and proceeded to tear it like right away like a dick um, oh no <laughs> but but i used it, i stitched it up and then i was like oh it's like frankenstein's creature you know and i was thread Fuck in yeah. it um and so <laughs> it became my my best buddy and i've like scared my mom with it a million times and and so i really fell in love with scaring people at that same time like all those things come together in a, in a great way and so those movies really hit me when i was four i saw the blob and it scared the piss out of me <laughs> Oh, yeah. Wow. Because I knew it could get in anywhere. And I'm talking, you know, the original because. You know, yeah, the original. Yeah. The OG. 1973. Mm-hmm. I saw this on TV um, and I'm terrified. I, you know, I, it can get in anywhere. Um, 
and like cosmic outer spacey things I really freaked me out from then on. I was super mm. in love with like In Search Of and you know Bigfoot was with the Six Million Dollar Man and you know that that kind of shit was all over the seventies. It was very weird. Yes, the cryptids were in pop culture. Cryptids are back in pop culture. I love it. <laughs> sure, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I love cryptids <laughs> so much. <laughs> <laughs> As an adult, what what do you think draws you to horror now? You know, it's it's always the thrill. Yeah. And do you still get that childhood thrill? I get a gleeful giddiness when I see something really working. Yeah. Like the witch tickles me in mm. such a way, like I watch it and I just grin. Um <laughs> It just makes me feel good. A movie like Jughead, or Jugface, not Jughead. Oh, Jugface. I love Jugface. Yeah, Chad Crawford Ginkle crafted a oh, perfect bit of like hillbilly so pagan lunacy that's so well executed. I'm looking for craft. When something is well acted, well shot, and the story makes a complete story, I love it. Uh, it, it has to do those for me, though. I'm, I've, I've been yeah. watching this shit a long time. If it yeah. doesn't hold yeah. up... You know, if it's just cool visuals and shit, I'm out. Yeah. You know, some of some of the things are totally beautiful that I can accept are beautiful, but they don't do it for me. But I love yeah. existential horror. I love cosmic horror. I love things that end darkly. You know, I love religious horror, pagan, satanic, anything like that that really delivers like the ritual. I thought really mm. delivered on, you yeah. know, a creepy I pagan love the ritual. freak out. Um, I, you know, stuff like Under the Skin, you know, really yeah. existential, dark, that stuff. I don't get scared, but I love it. Now, I did get scared recently. Watching, Ooh, tell us of, more. Watching Marianne. Oh, oh yes, the French yeah. which is crazy because it's a real kind of grab bag hodgepodge of horror where they throw everything yeah. at you that horror does. It's sort of like uh, an American horror story season that works. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, that is that is true. But the first couple episodes which they sort of got away with this style of scare, but had these just creeping dread and the nightmares were just scary enough to feel nightmarish. And I had a hard time sleeping after that. Like I've had to like, wow. I'm going to look out the corner of my eye and that doesn't happen to me very often. I'm, I'm in my fifties. Uh, I've seen it all. I've, I've, you know, lived through real tragedies. That's why I'm into showing my kids fake ones because it's boot camp <laughs> for the psyche. If you see yeah. terrible things before they're real, you, become prepared for the eventuality of horrible things because this life is full of horrors. And if you witness them in a safe way, it girds the loins. It makes you prepared. Yeah. It makes you ready. Yeah, that, that's gives you true. Just a little bit of just a little bit of psychic shield, you know, just a little yeah. bit of protection because you build up that resistance to seeing things. And so when it happens in real life, you're less likely to go to pieces and more likely to keep your shit. And so I've raised two boys that don't panic, which is awesome because uh, I've seen scary yeah. things happen and they go, all right, hold on. Let me go get the Band-Aids or, you know, let me go get the the mop. <laughs> the um, mop. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I firmly believe that as a parent that it, as and as an educator, I mean, I teach screenwriting and I teach horror writing. I, this is a thing that I firmly believe that it's it's purgative. It's good for you. Uh, and it gives you sort of emotional practice. Wow. That's that, really I'm, cool. That's true. Transitioning from from the, being a, a lover of horror into which I guess is probably similar things. How did you get involved with like screenwriting and and all of that kind of um, industry type stuff? I'd been an actor for a while and just was reading bad mm -hmm. scripts and and the oh. sort of arrogant dick in me was like, I can do better than this. <laughs> um, 
And so I started writing. And it was at a point where I'd had my first kid. My acting career was not on fire. And the my wife at the time uh, was starting to progress in her career. So I'm like, you go work. I'll stay home and watch the kid, and I'll teach myself to be a screenwriter. And so oh, I just wrote scripts until I was good at it and entered competitions until one of them got me a manager. Uh, was then just off to writing whatever I wanted. And I didn't start writing horror. I mean, I read, wrote horror, a horror script first because I, it was an opera in my head. And I'm like, operas are gothic, so let me write a gothic thing. But I don't know how to write an opera, so I'll just write it in a screenplay form. <laughs> Not that I really knew how to do that either, but I read a bunch of screenplays. <laughs> and so I'm like, ah, just do that. Uh, and it was terrible. And then I wrote like a, a sports comedy, and it was sexist oh. and awful. And I oh. wrote a, no. a uh, weird uh, music drama, Western country thing, like crazy heart thing <laughs> that was self-indulgent and, and lame. And then I wrote, uh, I'm like, all right, let me just go back to what I love. What do I love? And I wrote a riff on Dracula that I love. <gasps> And it got me a rep right away. And then I wrote a riff on Frankenstein and a riff on Jekyll and Hyde just to, like, practice how to – what my version of the greats was. Yeah. And so it was, like, uh, sort of an an exercise in trying to find what my voice was as a writer by sort of exploring this other person's story, this other person's ground, doing it in a a tangential way and and always, you know, too clever by at least half – because that's the problem with screenwriting. Cleverness is the opposite of satisfying. Um, so every writer wants to be clever, but the more clever you are, the more you undo the cliches that actually support the emotion that the viewer has. Uh, and so you take away the happy ending. They go, ah, that left me not feeling good. Or you turn a, a, a scene around to go, I'm going to completely subvert this cliche. And it, you know, subverts it so much that you don't even recognize it as subverting a cliche mm-hmm. anymore. Then you've lost the point and you're doing tricks for tricks sake. You know, it took me a long time to figure out to not do that. But there's, there's <laughs> my, I'll give you my, my screenwriting class and it's two lessons. One, be clear Two, know how you want your audience to feel. That's it. All right. That's it guys. You learn how to screen right now. That's it. That's all you need. The rest is formatting. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it very true. Um, <laughs> what um, how how did you get involved with Giallo? What was it, and what was it like working with Dario Argento? Yeah, what uh, the hell? That was insane. that was completely bonkers and out of the blue. Um, my writing partner and I, I, I tended bar at the Beauty Bar in L.A. And my the DJ, uh, he and I talked horror and movies and Hollywood all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. and would bitch about how we could do it better. Um, and he was a producer, and he, he produced Sci-Fi Channel's first movie and was like sort of a Ooh. you know struggling indie, low-budget you know low budget producer. And he wanted to get into screenwriting because he's like, oh, these scripts, they suck. And that, he had the same attitude as me, but I'm an actor coming at it. He's a producer, and together we edit each other really well. Uh, and so we clicked writing a, a script called L.A. Gothic. It was our first script that we wrote together uh, after – some wrangling in a couple of years of bouncing around town and passing through many people's hands and ended up on John Carpenter's desk and he oh, loved wow. it. And so we started working with John Carpenter regularly. And while that's being bounced around, Jen and I are like, what do we want to do next? Cause at this time it's early two thousands and we're like, it's horror is little girls with wet hair. And, uh, <laughs> yes it is. And we're like, okay, well, <laughs> what, what's missing? What have we not seen in forever? And we're like, ah, oh, Euro sleaze. Mm. We need to make some Euro sleaze. And so we came up with this concept of basically it wasn't strictly a jello. It was called yellow because it was about this 
yellow-skinned, sleazy, gross dude. And it had a lot of Jallo tropes in it, but it was mm. essentially written as sort of a a sort of a, a origin story for a Jallo killer. By the end, he's black hat and gloves and all that shit. Um, and so that was our idea. We send it to this one producer we know who does schlocky foreign sales and he gets it to a guy, an Italian dude who's all on board. He's like, does Italian TV series. And we're like, cool. Someone's going to make our movie. Um, and then he ba- bails for a better TV show. And so our Great. friend, uh, our friend there in Italy goes, well, I could probably give it to my friend, Asia. And we're like, Asia Argento. And he's like, yeah. And it's like, boom, gives it to Asia. <laughs> she gives it to Dario. Dario calls us up like three days later on Halloween and Holy says, shit. what? I love it. I want to make it. I even love the title, Jallo, because they translated the whole damn thing. Um, <laughs> oh, and so no. the title wow. says Jallo. I'm like, fuck. Jim and I immediately were like, oh, now we have to we have to turn this into a Jallo now or we're going to get screwed. And 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 so that began, began the long process of tweaking, rewriting. Uh, it went through many casting changes. Like it was supposed to be uh, Ray Liotta and uh, uh, oh. good. and what's his name? Uh, 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 Brown Bunny, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, Buffalo 66, the actor in that. I forget his name. Um, Vincent Gallo. Vincent Goodness. Gallo. Yeah. Oh, OK. So it's supposed to be them with Asia, And then Asia got pregnant and wow. and had to get out. And Vincent and Asia had an argument about something. And he was out. And Ray Liotta wanted more money. And he was out. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, shit. And then Adrian Brody stepped in and was like, I'll do it if I can play, you know, both roles. And we're like, <laughs> you're in, dude. Uh, <laughs> You're like, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And I'm like, now it's not, now we can step outside of the Jallo trope because we always wrote it as like an inversion of it. It has, if you look at the subject matter and look how it could have been handled. Um, I love Dario, but uh, it was supposed to be like the weird feminist take on the most misogynist genre where the two mm. women at the end have a plan and can succeed, but the cop who's such an asshole has to kill the bad guy instead of let him go that would let the girls live. You know, it was all set up like with this big specific thing about toxic masculinity back in 2007 we wrote this <laughs> uh, about a guy the cop couldn't just arrest him. It isn't good enough to arrest the guy. You gotta kill him. And if he just arrested him or let him go. If he let him go, he'd save a life, but he can't let the criminal go. Like, and so it's all this, you know, bullshit about that. And that's what causes, you know, the one woman in the end to die. Uh, uh, Elsa Pataki's character trapped in a car. Uh, and so it had these, these things that sort of fell flat and then got rewritten and then lost in translation. And I didn't get to go to Europe with uh, my writing partner, Jim. Jim went, I stayed here cause I had kids and sort of handled mm-hmm. meetings and writing assignments here while he uh, worked over there and actually shot second AD and was the hands of a killer in an Argento film. Wow. Which is super fucking cool. That's, that's amazing. That's so cool. Like, those are my hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was just because the kid in the scene could not stab through the, the dummy hard enough. He's like, give me the gloves. Here. It's like this. Bam, you know? <laughs> I love it. It's like, oh, just, my God. just go tight on my hands. I got it. You know, boom. So. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Uh, but, um, so you're, you're also a, a musician. Like what, what don't you do, Sean? Uh, that's, that's, I guess my big question. What don't you do? <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll figure that out one day. Uh, I'm at a, my tomb, my tombstone will say pretty good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have, is it, this is the second Halloween album you did, right? That is correct. Yeah. So how did, how did you come up with this idea of doing this? Well, I had been, I'm a lover of 
you know, music, of course, and the lover of mixtapes. Yeah. And I make mixtapes all the time and mix CDs all the time. And I would always make uh, Halloween mix CDs for my friends. And then I uh, started dating the lovely Chelsea Stardust, who does the mm-hmm. same. And we started combining our mixes. And then I'm like, I'm going to start recording my covers of classic Halloween songs because I felt like we were kind of kind of running out of good ones. And so I'm like, yeah. all right, I'll do some covers. And I did a couple of those for, for you know, a couple of years in a row. And then I finally sort of decided nah, I should, I should, I should do a Halloween album. And I didn't even know what that meant until I recorded my first two songs. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I got the idea now. It's a mixtape. Like, and then I started charting it like a mixtape, like has to start this way and then have a follow-up song that does this. And, uh, how do I engineer it to make it feel as Halloweeny as possible? And, uh, writing the songs and editing them down so that each, the whole thing is just under 45 minutes long. So it would fit on one side of a cassette, you know, like a mixtape, oh. you know, <laughs> doing things like that really specific. And I just fell in love with it. And it allowed me to be the weirdo, that I am. It allowed me to like never stick in one medium for too long. I could change sounds and try my best at impersonating all these different things that I thought I knew how to do, but I wasn't sure. And so it was a really terrifying, like out on a limb kind of, uh, sort of artistic experiment. Cause I'm like, I, I don't know if anyone's ever going to get this. I don't know if this is going to translate. I don't know if I'm even good enough, you know, imposter syndrome, even good enough to be trying this. And then I'm like, has anyone ever done this before? No, because it's crazy. Like, (laughs) and so it finally became like, all right, it needs to be 13 songs. It's Halloween album. So 13 Mm -hmm. original songs by 13 fake bands with interstitial stuff in between, just like I would do on a Halloween mixtape. I, you know, I needed a movie trailer. All right. So I got to write a fake movie trailer. I need some commercials. I need uh, a horror host. I need, you know, and so it's just then about writing those bits because I'm a screenwriter and I can write in character. Uh, I'm a musician. I can play, I play all the instruments on the album. I am all the background vocals. I sing most of the songs on the first album. The second album, I only sing three songs, but I'm background vocals on all of them. I think, um, (laughs) (laughs) there's, I think there's two tracks that don't have backing vocals that I'm not on. So I, I do, I know I can do it all, but I'm also fearful that I'm not good enough to be doing it all. So it, it, it stays a, a constant challenge. It always feels like I'm stretching, which is, you know, what you want to be doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this this new album, which um, listeners is is out tomorrow, uh, and we will include pre order links and whatnot. But it's it's really fucking good. It's so much fun. Oh, thank you. How um how did you you get like I, I mean because you have Amanda, I I never know how to pronounce her last Wiss. name correctly. Wiss, like Wiss. Kiss. Okay, that's what I thought, but I wasn't positive. You have Amanda Wiss from A Nightmare on Elm Street. You have Michael Variety, and you have Graham Skipper. Uh, how, how how did this all come together? Well, I mean, th- that was that was all Chelsea. Um, I'm I'm doing this first album, and she's like, "It doesn't matter how many fake bands you try to be; it's all going to sound like you if you sing everything." And of course, my defiant side goes, "Well, no." Um, and then, like an hour later, I go. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) And and so I'm like, all right, who do I know that sings? And I go straight for Graham Skipper because I've seen him sing. I saw Reanimator the Musical and I saw him and Jesse Merlin and they're friends of mine. And I'm like, Graham, will you sing on a Halloween album? He goes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I asked Jesse to come, you know, do the opening narration, the the spooky intro on the first album. And he was like, well, yes. Um, And so (laughs) I, I knew I had something then. And I'm like, all right, I need some women. 
uh, on a lark. I reached out to Amanda Wiss. I know her. I've known her since my acting days. Um, I was with a very good friend of hers in the first national tour of Rent. Oh, wow. So I was Roger in Rent uh, in Boston as the first people to take it on the road. And uh, I love that. <laughs> and so I, I was... Yeah, yeah, immersed in in that, um, and so I was Roger in Rent, and um, my dear friend and mentor Jeez. Carrie Carrie Hamilton was in the show with me as Maureen, and she's she's the person who was like, Sean, you need to be a writer. You know, she was the one who really pushed me into this, uh, and and she was like the seasoned pro. You know, she's Carol Burnett's daughter. She knows Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, and so I've always listened to her advice on everything. She made she helped me be a pro in everything, and she was friends with Amanda Wiss. And so Amanda came to see the show and I met her that way and then just kept on running into her at her sister's parties in town in L.A. And so uh, just sort of a, a she's sort of a family friend at this point. Casual. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, we go have lunches <laughs> with some regularity. I, I adore her. She's marvelous. I asked her to be in the super micro budget movie we did called The Capture. I'm like, I can only pay you shit ass, you know, WGA scale for the day. At, uh, and here's a role that I wrote for myself, but you're a better actor. What Would you please do it? And she was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. So she, she is amazing and says yes every time I ask her to do something. So I owe her huge. I need to I need to get her a real paying gig um (laughs) pay her back (laughs) but yeah so it just went that way i mean out here in the la sort of horror community you know we've got a lot of friends we all go see each other's stuff and so i've just sort of started that terrible process of asking for help and uh yeah wow that is a terrible (laughs) it's 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 so hard to ask for help like it's really hard it's a thing it it really is um when you especially you know i'm a guy thinking i can do it all i'm doing music because i can control it when i write a script it's Mm going to go into someone else's hand the director producer the crew the actors everything else is going to change it this is something i can make sound exactly how i want it to sound as you know given i learn how to use the tools properly to do so and so with that Asking for help outside is like, oh, no, it's going to get tainted. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it instantly creates that knee-jerk reaction. And so it it, take, it took a little, you know, pride swallowing to ask for help. And, of course, it's so much better for it. You know, having friends come in and help me with it creates the effect that I wanted. It doesn't all sound like me. It sounds like a mixtape of a bunch of different bands you never heard of. I was going to say, I think what I loved so much about this album was it all felt like it was by, they were different bands with different genres and different vibes and almost for different times too. It was so cool. Like every track is so different yeah. and it was so fun to like to press next on each track. You're like, oh wait, this is a totally different vibe. I love this. Like it was just, it definitely feels like a mixtape and I love that so much. Ah, oh, that makes me smile so big. I'm so glad yeah. that people get it. I, I I still can't believe that people get this concept. It's so weird. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad. It, I'm so glad it translates. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, to- it totally does. And like, especially yeah. with like, um, is it a Nokian warning? Is that you know how you say a Nokian? Oh yeah. Who dares into my crypt uninvited? Oh, it's you, my brave seeker of the dark. I, the, like that introduction, I was like, "Oh my god!" I felt like I was watching like Svengoolie or like um, another one of those guys on on TV, and I was just like, "This is so cool!" And I and that goes right into the haunted house and "Never Be Your Bride," which are two of my favorite songs. So it was just such a cool like transition from the kind of like you said like fake trailer e stuff into the music, and the flow was really awesome. 
Yeah, that one, I specifically tried to make it sound, I, I gave Amanda sort of instructions to, you know, her direction was, A, be the smartest smarty pants you can be, you know, very snooty. Um, but <laughs> I also, you know, I sent her the opening of Disney's Thrilling Chilling Sounds of the Haunted House, where it's the, oh, look at you, like, and the greeting of this woman, and, I, and it's very much in that style. So I was like, that was the one that really sent me on this path as a kid. So I'm like, all right, I had to, had to do a major homage to that. Uh, it was sort of a combination of that and the G.I. Joe thing because because I put the little drums and the sort of John Williams ripoff oh, yeah. riff in there. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, I want to make it sound like we're inside a, a tomb and, it, and it's vaguely like Egyptian or something. And uh, yeah, that was super fun. <laughs> and she crushed I know it. it. it oh, she did. So, she so really good. did. She really did crush it. Um, I know it's difficult because like they're probably all your children, but do you have one that you're particularly proud of? Well, uh, uh, songs. You Won't See Me was the one that was the hardest uh, to get to. Um, and so the fact that it came out as good as it is, if I you know, don't mind me okay. saying, <laughs> saying about myself, but uh, I, I really love it. I, I haven't done dance music before. Uh, I, last time on my album, I was putting my list of things together, and I put THRILLER in all caps, and I'm like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't come up with a THRILLER on the first album. And so that was haunting me the whole time. I'm like, what's my take on you know, THRILLER and somebody's watching me and, and those kind of things? And, and I don't write that kind of music, so how do you do it? And I just sort of I listened to Thriller a million times. I watched uh, video breakdowns of all the instrumentation of it so I could figure it out. I tracked how many beats per minute it was. And I did all these things wow. and tried to recreate the percussion of it almost exactly, you know, with just enough variation that it doesn't sound like I dropped a needle, you know, taking the Thriller freaking, you know, sample uh, with a slightly different melody on top. So I wanted that rhythm, that beat, and so I studied, 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 and drove my son crazy with the recording because my 23-year-old son Folsom is my recording engineer, uh, mixer master, at sometimes co-producer. So he, he's going nuts with me, going, "All right, I need that uh, the sound of the kungas from you know an 808. I need the 808 kunga sound." And he's like, "Well, I don't have. I've got the 909." You know, I'm like, "No, I need." And I'm like mentioning these like weird drum machine models from the early 80s that you know you have to find like models of them online. It, it's just this never-ending, I'm doing research and driving him nuts. So making that one come out good, that was that was very gratifying. So, and, I was going to say, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, and Mary Beth can, can confirm this. In my notes, I wrote, oh my god, Sean's voice on You Won't See Me. It is, uh, it's, it's my favorite of the album, to be perfectly honest. And it is such like, a good vibe. Oh. Yes. I really I got you. what you were going for. And, and that one hit me in the shower. I was like, alright, I was trying to figure out how to do it, and I finally, like, I started just humming the, the bass line, and and I was thinking, you know, I was thinking somebody's watching me because if I like cross somebody's watching me with Thriller, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'll do the opposite. I'll do it from the point of view of the Invisible Man. And we had just seen the movie and I was like, OK, you won't see me. It's a threat. Now it's like every breath you take. It's like the police like stalker song. And so I sort of mixed all those in. So it's like a creepy stalker song that sounds sweet and bouncy until you're like, oh, this is awful. Uh, and so I'm <laughs> yeah. glad people like it and don't just hate it because it's it's, you know, lyrically awful. Uh, but also <laughs> clever. Uh, but also very catchy. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what the lyrics are. I just want to dance to this song. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, you listen. You're like, oh, this is horrible. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, would would you mind if we uh, include that in uh, in our recording? Sure, no problem. All right, so listeners, uh, this is you won't see me. Oh, 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 oh,
talked about your creative endeavors, your horror history. But Sean, what movie have you brought with you today for us to talk about? Uh, we are going to talk about Beneath the Planet of the Apes. The Planet of the Apes was only the beginning. What lies beneath may be the end. The only good human is a dead human! Can a planet long endure half ape, half human? You'll know the terrifying answer when apes and humans meet head on beneath the planet of the apes in the atomic rubble of New York. The guerrilla war machine is on the march. Human mutants strike back with new frightening weapons of the mind. 
20th Century Fox presents Beneath the Planet of the Apes with James Franciscus, Maurice Evans, Tim Hunter, Linda Harrison, and Charlton Heston as Taylor. Can a planet long endure half ape, half human? The answer lies beneath the planet of the apes. Rated G. Oh yes, my God. What a wild movie. So for those of you unfamiliar, um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes um, is about a sole survivor of an interplanetary rescue mission who searches for the only survivor of a previous expedition. <laughs> he discovers a planet ruled by apes and an underground city run by telepathic humans. It sounds so cut and dry in that summary, but like <laughs> yes, this does. movie is fucking bananas. Bananas? Apes? Ha-ha! Ha-ha! <laughs> I didn't even mean for that to happen, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Sean, tell us your horror story about this. Like, I want to know how old you were, how you saw it, where you saw it. Give us a scene. Paint us a picture of this ridiculous movie. I am uh, eight years old. My family has just moved to the suburbs of of Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. Wait, where? Hold on. Where in Northern Virginia? Because I live near Northern Virginia. I grew up in McLean. No way. I'm in Silver Spring. Ah, right on. Well, hello. Sorry. Um, (laughs) I'm like, no one's ever from this area. What? (laughs) uh, Yeah. Uh, So I I just moved there. I have no friends. Uh, I don't know anyone. Uh, I'm, we have a house again. I said that this is, you know, 1977 that we don't have cable or a VCR. And so I'm sitting around trying to watch TV, but my sisters are dominating. So the only time I ever really get it is right after school. And Mm. back then there was a thing called the four o'clock movie. Um, and the four o'clock movie played on our local channel five and it was a themed week of movies. And so on an awesome week, you'd get like, uh, atomic gigantism all week, like them and the amazing colossal man and attack oh, yeah. the woman and things like that. Or, and, and on a bad week, it would be, you know, then, or it would be some Westerns. Like they would always theme it out, but you never knew what you were going to get. And sometimes it was like Douglas Sirk. And as a kid, I'm like, nope, um, uh, I love that now, but I was not responding to that uh, as a young boy <laughs> obsessed with Lancelot Link's Secret Chimp, uh, my favorite TV show, which is <laughs> chimpanzees riding around on mini motorcycles chasing sp- <laughs> that are spies chasing after evil apes in a they're from ape the agency to prevent evil um, <laughs> and are chasing after uh, these evil. I forget what the bad guys are called. But anyways, I mean, I'm obsessed with that. And I see an ad for Apes Week. And so they're going to play all five Planet of the Apes movies in sequential order on the four o'clock movie. I had seen the cartoon. I had seen a little bit of the TV series, but I'd never seen any of the movies because no VCR, no cable. So I I couldn't, I never went to see them in the theater because I was too young. My parents not interested. So they start playing. I watched the first one. Oh my God, that ending. Holy shit. Freaked me out. I'm like anything with monkeys I'm in. And oh my, they, they run the world. This is, this is terrifying. And then the ending. Uh, yeah. I was also growing up in, you know, the DC area area in, you know, red, the sort of nuclear nightmare. We're always being told every night that we're going to get nuked. And so this, right. Like the world, they did it. Uh, so that hits. And I'm like, this is amazing. I can't wait for tomorrow. So I race home. It's a Tuesday afternoon. I turn on beneath the planet of the apes and it's, like a rehash it's 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 charlton heston light it's james franciscus who when they finally you see them side by side is like a foot shorter than the the massive charlton (laughs) heston um but he's like the cuter version uh who's looking for taylor looking for charlton heston's character who sort of rode off with uh what's her name in the end um and so nova with nova so he and nova he finds nova nova's 
sort of says Taylor, the only word she can say. And he goes, oh, you've seen Taylor? And they start writing off. And it's sort of a by-the-numbers sequel until <laughs> they find the ruins of New York City <laughs> in a cave under a subway stop. And then shit gets insane. I'm, I was like, is this the same movie? Did I press a button? Like, I legitimately was like, wait. And then, and then it really what? drove home that horror, that nuclear horror. He's like, I used to live not far from here. And I'm watching it. And that impacted me. I was like, fuck, we are going to get nuked any minute now. The Russians are going to fucking, like, I was really terrified of that the day after. Oh, that also fucked me up. I'm sure that's, someone else has already talked about that. <laughs> um, but these, this sort of was really, had me amped up. And on edge. And then you get to Taylor, and then you get these psychics, these these weird uh, dudes in robes with psychic powers who control uh, James Franciscus's character. What's his name? Let's see. Uh, Brent. Brent, yes. Brent. Um, so Just so boring. Yeah. Brent. <laughs> Brent and Taylor. So they're, they start controlling with their mind. I'm like, okay, I saw this on Star Trek on a rerun. This is, this is cool. I'm into this. Uh, and they make them fight, and I'm like, I also saw this on Star Trek um, <laughs> uh, with their mind powers. But it was cool and weird, and then the apes show up, and I'm like, oh, this is going to get bloody. The apes are going to kill all these dudes. And then you reveal that the melted sort of church they're in is St. Patrick's Cathedral. Again, oh. very Catholic kid. Very Catholic. <laughs> in the middle of New York City, melted down, and in the center of it is a doomsday nuclear device that they worship. And then they say, yeah. we, re we reveal our inmost selves. I reveal my inmost self unto my God. Unto my God. Unto my God. Pull off their masks. Uh, I, yes, I actually, I actually screamed. <laughs> I was like, "What?" I did not realize. Like, I, I have never seen this movie. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't look up anything, and I was just losing my fucking mind. And my boyfriend walked in. He's like, "Oh yeah, beneath the planet of the apes." I'm like, "You knew about this?" I was <laughs> what? <laughs> I was, I was watching this in my parents' bedroom, and you know, and it's in the, it's in the fall, and it's it like it just had the point where it just got dark. Like it started at four, and now it's you know almost six o'clock, and it just got dark out. And I got up and backed into the hallway so that I could watch from the safety of the doorway. Now I didn't close my eyes, but I like actively got up off the bed and backed up several feet um, <laughs> because I'm like, oh, uh, that just scared me. What is what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> And then it gets worse. <laughs> Where apes show up, the, the mutant humans uh, realize, oh, no, it's all gone to hell. They shoot the shit out of Charlton Heston uh, and James Francisco. It's like, oh, no, they're, they're, everyone's going to die. Oh, yeah, everyone's going to die. Charlton Heston's like, it's doomsday. The end of the world. Fuck planet Earth. Uh, and decides to detonate the Alpha Omega end of the world bomb and then it cuts to a bit of narration oh it sure does it, it sure fucking does it's chilling in one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium sized star and one of its satellites a green and insignificant planet is now dead it's like a once green planet is now dead and that's it Jesus fucking Christ. I was shattered. That movie 
did all the things I needed a movie to do. It like ticked my nuclear horror. It was apes gone crazy. It was mutants and it was blowing up the world. I was in love and horrified at the same time and then raced to watch the next movie and was completely confused by its tone, which I now adore. Uh, and and proceeded to watch all the movies. Like, I just fell in love with the Apes franchise. I still think it's the best franchise out there. Uh, take that oh. Marvel and Star Wars and everything else. The most consistent franchise out there. Uh, because all three of the remakes, also very good. Okay, I was going to ask you, what is the stance on the remakes? And what is your stance on the Tim Burton 2001 <laughs> adaptation of Planet of the Apes? That would be a black spot. Um, okay, cool. The Tim <laughs> we Burton don't, one... Like, pretend it doesn't exist. It, it was offensive when i saw it i was <laughs> i was really struck because i i was that was also hitting me right in my you know mid 20s and i'm a very particular film nerd at that point um ah, you know okay. and i saw that and i was like no <laughs> what were you thinking you know <laughs> i don't believe mark Wahlberg can drive a car let alone fly in a, a fucking spaceship like uh, <laughs> This is everything about it was wrong. The makeups were amazing uh, and yeah. really, 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 really cool. But everything about the story was upside down and wrong. And I know that it was pulling a little bit more from Pierre Bull's book, which I still have not read, which I should. Uh, Planet du Singe is, you know, it, apparently they flew helicopters and had a very modern society. And so, yeah, OK, whatever. Um, I, I don't dig what Burton did. The remakes then that came, I was very like crossing my arms with a huff going we'll see about this <laughs> and uh loved it just loved it i thought they got the spirit of it perfect uh they made you feel for the apes it's everything that happened in conquest got brought to life in this new franchise which is what i wanted because battle for the planet of the apes the fifth one in the original film series is not great either it's a weak spot mm -hmm. and i wanted things to get better after conquest and this is what gets better after conquest so I know I've seen this as a kid, um, cause I, I watched, um, a I think I've seen all five of the original ones, but I, I honestly, I saw them out of order cause it was like, it was, I grew up in the eighties. So it was basically what you, whatever your parents rented or whatever you had at the time. So like I watched these movies, but I have like vague, just vague scenes that just pop out of me. Like in this particular one, I remember, I mean, how could you not, I remember seeing mutants take off their faces. <sighs> And I do remember Brent and Taylor duking it out. And I think it's because they were in like an Iron Maiden-y type cell. Like it was very like spiky on the side. So yeah. that probably like is why it jumped out at me. Very metal, very homoerotic, like real like man oh, on man. Oh, yes, it is. It's Watching stuff. it now as an adult, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm kind of I'm kind of digging yeah, this. Yeah, I'm like, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is ticking boxes. I'm into this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny thing is, is growing up, the thing that I remember most about uh Planet of the Apes was when the Simpsons did their fish called Wanda, uh, fish called Selma <laughs> episode where Troy McClure sings in the musical of the Planet of the Apes called Stop the Planet of the Apes. I want to get off. <laughs> get your paws off me, you dirty ape. He can talk. 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 I can sing. Oh, help me, Dr. Sayers. Just perfect. I like went to go look up that video after I was watching this movie because that's what immediately brought me back to and I could I could quote that almost entire song. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so like that that's my memory growing up of Planet of the Apes mostly was these random sequences from the first like fr- from the first series and then the Simpsons. <laughs> well, it's so overtly parodyable. Like you see it and you can yeah. you can make fun of it instantly. It's people walking around in ape masks. You know, it's everything about it on the surface is goofy. It's just these. It's just treated with such seriousness. I mean, Gene Rodden. I mean, yeah, Gene Roddenberry wrote. Or not Gene Roddenberry. Uh, uh, what's it? Rod Serling wrote the the screenplay for yeah. Planet of the Apes. You know, like, and you when you see the end, you're like, oh, he totally did, didn't he? Um, and it's kind of got that genius science fiction vibe because even more than horror, I'm a science fiction lover. You know, that's yeah, that's if, when you do science fiction and horror together, boy, am I on board. Um, What's your favorite sci-fi horror? Alien. OK, yeah, yes. that makes sense. Just that's a good one. It doesn't get better. You know, there's, there's a lot of them I like, but there's none that are better. Yep. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree 100 percent. That's my one of my favorite movies, period. You know, like, watching this as an adult, like there it, it's still kind of like there, there's a lot of creepiness to this movie. <laughs> oh, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, Mary Beth, I know you were talking about the human shootings range, like, <laughs> where, I know. like the film takes like, a turn. There's like a point, really, there's a point in the film when they get to the, like, when they get to the subway that really, the tone really shifts. But for me, when they like roll up in their, like, in the little cage to the human target practice, I was like, mm. wait, something's weird here. Like this, because I mean, <clears throat> I had like, I'm pretty, I'm a, I'm much younger um, so I didn't have, I don't know a lot about Planet of the Apes. I had seen the fir- the Tim Burton one in theaters and literally had no idea there was a franchise outside of it. Um, and so I thought it was all like dumb, cheesy, sci-fi fun. And I knew about them. I finally learned about them. And then I watched this one and I was like, this is not fun. This is really sad. <laughs> like, this is not, I did not expect nihilism to be coming at me from beneath the planet of the apes well i mean what charlton heston's like first things he's saying as he's getting on the the ship in the first movie he's like yeah this world sucks <laughs> yeah. like, maybe, maybe human maybe we'll there's something we'll find something better than man out there and that's his point of view he is a misanthrope like and he gets what he asked for and it's such like a fucked up wish fulfillment um that it is a misanthropic movie across the board. It's they they the first one you get to sort of cheer for Taylor and and fear for the humans, but in the second one, there's no hope. Like you said, there's no. the human shooting range. It starts off very just bleak. It's humans are not worth anything in this world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I you know and the, like uh-huh. it just it just continues from there though because like even when it when it starts to like get into like the kind of religious horror aspect of it like what the, the fuck, I was <laughs> aghast when like the apes are marching on the city and they see illusions of themselves upside down and crucified in flames yeah and the monument shows up and it's bleeding from the eyes and the forehead I'm like that seems fine yeah yeah I mean <laughs> it's it, you want to you want to make someone mad you push their religious buttons uh. That that was totally like a great fucked up way to depict what a all powerful malicious psychic would do to someone. It's like ah, I'm gonna pick out that thing you love that you believe in and ruin it for you. You know. <laughs> when I was I was laughing, I was texting Terry. I was like, wait, so there everyone still has God here? We're still like adhering to the idea of God in this weird like new society. Like apes held onto that and didn't evolve it 
into anything. And then it gets even weirder when they're worshipping the f- giant penis, which is obviously the nuclear warhead, but it's like this giant phallus in the middle of a church. And they're all talking about the holy fallout. The holy fallout. And I was fallout. like, there is so much more religion than I had ever – like, a lot of things are more than I expected. But the intense religious kind of, like, undertones were very shocking. And it definitely puts – religion like on blast <laughs> oh it's it's inherent- <laughs> literally and figuratively it's it's inherently atheistic at its core uh this yeah. franchise it, it yeah. is it is an indictment of religion over and over and over uh which i didn't get as a kid no at or or it started to maybe turn those cogs in my brain when i was evolving out of being religious uh it probably had a great mm. deal to do with that but it's as an adult watching it again, you go, yeah, this is this has got an, a specifically atheistic agenda, which is weird and interesting. It, it definitely goes in the mold of a lot of those Charlton Heston apocalyptic movies, you know, Soylent like Green and, and Omega Man. They all came out sort of around the same time. And so there was that vibe that, you know, God is Dead was on you know Time Magazine, Rosemary's Baby. Like there was that vibe in yeah. the early yeah. 70s of, you know, funk religion. Yeah. And I would love to get back to that. <laughs> yes too. agreed you Please. know what's what's so weird about this movie is is how much of a troubled production it had from even like trying to create the script because like i was i was doing some research and the amount of scripts they went through to get to what they did is is kind of surprising because they they had rod serling put in a script they had uh the french author pierre bollet writing a script they kind of combined the two. They had Paul Din, Den Dean, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, who wrote Goldfinger. He wrote a, wrote a script version of it. And they went through like all these different, like different stories and they kind of conglomerated them all like together. And then of course, Charlton Heston refused to, re- to reprise Taylor. And they had to like work out that he wanted to be killed off in the first scene. And then he was like, Oh no, maybe I'll just come back at the end. And, the studio head is is basically like he's in the process of being fired by by the studio and he didn't want the franchise to continue so he's like let's blow up the world yeah it's like it's so it's so wild how this movie came to be (laughs) i mean it 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 does it is the end of it all it's where the franchise ends which is so weird like you know it, it no matter how slippery the timeline gets and the time travel aspects of it get that's where it's going, you know, and that that sort of hangs over the whole thing. Yeah. So I watching this as an adult, I found the human characters to be incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Agreed. <laughs> I agree. Um, Like, I, while I would love to see Charlton Heston and, and James Franciscus, like, get into a smolder contest, they just <laughs> they're really boring um, and they're very angry. <laughs> yeah, it's just, one note. Look. They so hyper masculinity so in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was the the you know the early you know Dirty Harry era. You know it's that yeah. squint squint and grit your teeth kind of tough guy yeah. acting, which I kind of dig on a certain level. You know it it it, it the, the appeals to that sort of cowboy side that I love. Um, but yeah, they're they're not engaging. You feel so much more for you know Cornelius and Zira and Doctor Zayas even. Uh, in the first movie and in the second movie, you know, they're sort of pushed to the side and you're like, oh, who are these damn mutants? What the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> I made a note that said Nova was the most interesting character by accident. 
<laughs> like I feel like they didn't. They she has no lines, but I found her so much more interesting than the two male characters. Now come so. on, she has a line. <laughs> she oh, shouts yeah. their Sorry. name. Sorry, <laughs> oh, she's killed. But she yells hair. their name. That That's hair. Fun. Her hair. Oh, it was very good. I was like, honestly hair goals very like perfectly quaffed and like falling properly i was like all right yeah the apocalypse is doing it. her right right yep what conditioner <laughs> do you, what conditioner do you use in the post-apocalypse my friend how do you keep your hair so shiny it's uh, amazing <laughs> and perfectly quaffed right <laughs> not a hair out of place even though she's wearing a loincloth and can't talk because of gorillas yep. <laughs> can't talk because of gorillas I love it. <laughs> I was actually kind of sad that the the Simeon side didn't get a little bit more play in this because, like, they're more of the more interesting characters this time around. Yeah. Particularly Zira. I was, like, cheering her on the entire time she was, like, standing up to Dr. Zayas, where he's, like, asking her, is innocence so evil? And she's like, ignorance is. And they're like, it's time for, there's a time for truth. And she's like, and the time is always now. I love her. <laughs> like, God damn it. This feels a little yeah. on the nose in 2020. <laughs> it, it, was, it was on the nose then. I mean, Kim Hunter yeah. crushes. She acts way through that prosthesis. She is so good in it. It's It's amazing. So... I'm going to ask a clarifying question here. Zira was in the first one too, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, Zira and Cornelius, although Cornelius was played by uh, Roddy McDowell in that one. Yeah, so that's so funny because we watching it as someone who has like no real familiarity with the franchise, I was like, who are these? <laughs> who are these apes? I was like, they seem important, but they're not getting as much screen time, so I'm a little bit confused. So that was a, that's a... Good to know in the brain. And then in the third one, they just take over. I mean, that that's... That's right. They that uh, they deliver a, just a comedic fucking cavalcade. They are so... <laughs> the two of them are so marvelous being transported back into the present of the 70s. I, I love it. It took me a while to come around to that one, but I really, really, really like that one, too. Is it funny? Is it like not as intense as the second one? Well, it's yeah, it's 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 super funny. Like they they go back in time. They they get on. They make the spaceship work, and they escape the Earth, the planet right before it blows up, and blast off and end up in the seventies in L.A. And they're celebrities, <laughs> and it's oh. funny. It's weird. It's such a good watch. And then it ends with a really scary, fucked up ending because it's a Planet of the Apes movie. <laughs> And so it, it's it's All one right. of those that like the tone is a million times lighter and it's borderline goofy in a bunch of moments, but it's kind of delightfully so it's buoyant and it, it's all about them and like, how does the world treat them? And then once they start like they have to hide the fact that they come from a future where the apes rule because they know that they'll huh. get murdered for that if they admit that to anyone, <laughs> you know, they're afraid to even speak around humans right away. It's one of those things where it's it's very it's a very much a switch where they're the prisoners of the humans and the scientists have to like come to grips with them and then they become sort of popular and it's a very very strange movie so it's perfectly in keeping with the goddamn franchise it, it's such a strange franchise you're giving me like so much more appreciation for planet of the apes and i want to watch all of them because now i'm like damn what i i've been sleeping on these do it like, and, I, and i haven't seen i've only seen the first, like, the rise of the Planet of the Apes, the one with James Franco, where, like, he's teaching Caesar, like, how mm -hmm. to be a person. I've seen that one, and I enjoyed it, but I haven't seen the other the others. But now, you have inspired me to seek them all They're out. really good. Make sure you've seen, uh, you know, uh, 
what was it, Escape from Planet of the Apes and Conquest before you go into the new franchise because they lay all the groundwork. Conquest for the Planet of the Apes, movie number four, is about, it starts off with, there's been a plague that's killed all the house pets. And so people are bringing apes into their homes. And they're the new fad pet. And people are training them to work. And they can push a broom. And they can do all these things. And all of a sudden, it's about enslaved apes rising up. And it's a a straight, like, sci-fi... Uh, racial, racially charged uprising movie. And hmm. it's, it is prescient. It is politically huh. hot. Uh, and it's got like a great carryover from the, the, the third movie, Escape. You know, they all link. And so seeing them in order is important. The last one, Battle, doesn't matter that much. You can watch it or not. But the first four are essential viewing if you're into this in any way. Cool. That's good to know. I, yeah, because okay. I, I, barely remember anything of the the original five but you know what what jumped out at me this time is how much of like an anti-war movie this is um because you have like well first of all you have ursus the the warmonger ape who is literally quoting well paraphrasing but pretty much quoting like philip sheridan who fought in the indian wars his thing about the only good Indian is a dead Indian is what he's like credit as saying. And so you literally have Ursus saying, The only good human is a dead human. You have soldiers chowning invade, invade, invade. You have Dr. Zayas that's going along with the warmonger. And he's actually not really a good doctor or a scientist in this movie because he has no desire for like truth. He wants to like keep the status quo. He has only one motive, to keep things exactly as they have always been. I say that it's time for a change. And so you have that going on, and then you have, like, these parallels to the Vietnam War with, like, the, the picketing. Yeah. I was going to say, there's an interesting look at colonialism, too, I think. And these grounds we can obtain in the once forbidden zone. It is therefore our holy duty to put our feet upon it, to enter it, to put the marks of our guns and our wheels and our flags upon it to expand the boundaries of our ineluctable power and to invade 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 yeah because vietnam war was so much about like ending colonialism and the colonial influences of france and the u.s and vietnam and so there's such an interesting thing with them picketing and then also again with the indian war reference about you know, like killing Indians and Native Americans. It's like there is this weird colonial vibe, but it gets so weird because it's like, okay, so are the apes colonizing? The apes are like very obviously colonizing humans, but what does that mean about the humans who are previously colonizers? And there's like a really interesting tension there about colonialism and colonizers and who colonized who first and that kind of thing. It does what good sci-fi does. It, it, allows you to use a, an oblique metaphor to call attention to the problems of today. And yeah. and it's very specifically anti-war, every bit of it. I mean, the, we, blew oh, yeah. it all up. we blew it all up. That's why the apes are in charge. You know, yeah. we fucked up the planet. We, we were not good enough custodians. Um, and it seems like we're leaning that way. Like, it always feels like we're leaning that way. And so dystopian fiction was always my favorite kind of fiction as a kid. Uh, and, and the movies, and this falls so squarely in that. And then what, what I found so interesting is that after we, we have, like, this this Vietnam, um, 
like critique sort of it kind of goes into cold war fears at the time as well you have like the the mutants that are that are basically like holding on to like this illusion of power and their idea that well we have this big nuclear weapon so we'll have mutually you know assured destruction (laughs) if people attack us and so there's like there's that aspect of it and i I know that at the time mind control was a huge thing in particular with the fears of communism from the cold war like there i was reading this smithsonian magazine article about about like how that was a real fear because you had people coming back from from like prisoners of war that were you know confessing to doing these things that they didn't do and so people were like afraid of brainwashing and all of this and it's like it it's so it it's so interesting to see how it transitions from being about this Vietnam War, but also about the Cold War fears um, that were kind of going on at the time. Yeah, man, it's it's a whole uh, mixed bag of that, and I, I love it for it. It's 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 yeah, wonderfully liberal <laughs> and enlightened stuff posing as you know monkey porn, you know, monkey fiction. <laughs> monkey not, not monkey porn, but, you know, tickling that, 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 <laughs> that, that need for talking. I have a need for talking apes. It's it's not healthy, but it's there. I admit it. Planet of the Apes, it's just porn now. <laughs> that yeah, exists, yeah. though, right? I assume so. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I don't want to see it. Um. <laughs> well, and... And even like the line that kind of really chilled me, um, watching it now was when one of the mutants was like, we're a peaceful people. We don't kill our enemies. Yeah. Like we get our enemies to kill each other. I I was like, ooh, goosebumps, shivers. Oh my God. That was some, that's just insanely creepy. And it, it just shows how, you know, power corrupts. There's, there's no power that doesn't. And so they're so inherently corrupt, even though they think themselves enlightened. We, they are the elite, you know, in their minds. And so it, it's an indictment of that, of, of you know, of elitism in general. Um, it, it's, it really has its sword swinging in a lot of directions and, and hits most of the targets, honestly. And then, like, the, the ending is just, it, I mean, we talked about it, but it's just, it's so nihilistic. You have the mutants that are committing suicide because they don't want to be blown up. Like, you, it, it, it's, it's so... <laughs> it's so dark when when the apes come across the bodies of that they you know drinking some kind of poison and they're just lounging in this this city and then once nova gets shot and killed after saying her one line they're all like we should let them all die look what it comes to it's it's time it was finished and like it, it's just this very finite feeling <laughs> well and especially because like they shoot brent right in the head like right in the forehead yeah, and you're like, they don't do that in movies, do they? They don't yeah. kill the lead. What the hell? You know, I, the whole time before and up until the point it gets shot, I'm like, how are they going to get out of this? Yeah, you know, is still the vibe you have because it's a it's a studio picture, and nope, going to kill them all. Going to kill them all. And I kind of, but like, I love that because I feel. I mean, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I'm not super familiar with like horror and sci-fi from the 60s and 70s, but it feels pretty ballsy to be like. For sure. Like, because I know nihilism is pretty common and more, more, at least much more common in horror now. But like back then, it seems pretty well, ballsy to be like, hey, we're going to kill off the two leads and we're just going to kill everyone. And, and there's no vil- – like everyone's the villain. Everyone sucks and everyone is destroyed. It's like, there, oh. There was a wave of it going down in cinema right at that time. Because this is, you know, okay. late 60s. Or, this is what, 70 – what year is this, 1970? I think it's 70. Yeah, yeah. it was released Yeah, 1970. So, uh, you know, Easy Rider came out the year before. And how does mm. that end? Um, 
you know, uh, movies were were ending bleakly at the time. You know, The Wild Bunch came out the year before. Uh, and that ends with a bunch of guys, you know, rushing in to their death, knowing they're going to die. And it ends with them all dying. Like, so it had become a thing to like, it was sort of the end of the studio system and the beginning of, of, you know, that, that, you know, wonderful age of the seventies where people were making cool movies in the studio system and the rules were gone and people were, this was like this overt challenging of rules. And so this one was ballsy and yeah, Fox did not like this production. They were you know, Zanuck pushed no. and pushed and pushed, but Fox was not into it um, and was never into it. And that kind of allowed Zanuck to be as free with it as he was, uh, maybe not with the money because the budgets kept shrinking. But yeah, they and that's why they shot the third one in L.A. It's like, oh, we only need to have two apes. Um, <laughs> and it's cheaper and it's contemporary. We don't have to go shoot out at the ranch, you know. Um, so th- even though those kept happening, he, there was that freedom to keep going with the story because those kinds of movies were working. And so there was proof that, you know, hmm. that movies like that were doing box office. And so you could get away with it for a short window there. And it wasn't until, you know, Jaws and Star Wars of it all sort of ruined it. Um, and mm-hmm. everything had yeah. to be an event movie. Yeah. Wow. That's, wow. That's true. And, you know, even even the last line of the movie is so bleak, just the way it's <laughs> worded, where it's basically like talking about how, yeah, this planet that all these people are fighting and killing themselves over it is one of countless billions of galaxies. It's a it's a medium-sized star and a satellite, insignificant when you look at the scope of the entire universe. And now it's just dead. Like it's it the way it's worded is just so like matter of fact and so and so just bleak that I'm like, damn, there's credits now, and this is like, like this it's is so it. like it's reading a textbook and then credits immediately. Like it's like oh yep yeah, goodbye. There's no like follow up or like it's like funny ending that gives you hope. It's just immediately to the credits. Yeah, and it's and that that ending is sort of uh you know, Carl Sagan sort of took it and flipped it into something sweeter in his book Cosmos where he calls it, you know, looking back at the earth it's a a dust mote suspended on a sunbeam. But it's mm. it's a beautiful thing to say as the view from Voyager as Voyager's leaving our solar system right. uh, is looking back and there's a photograph and that's how he said it in Cosmos. And sure, that's poetic and sweet, but it's just as horrifying. <laughs> we are. Yeah. I mean, cosmic horror is something that really works for me because I'm a science nerd. And so I mm. I know that nothing matters on this planet (laughs) that we could all die in an instant that just a blast from a quasar that just is aimed the wrong way at any point in time could fry all life on this earth at any second and we'd never know it was coming um that's horrifying that's the the universe is a cruel place and so uh i find i found used to find terror terror in that now i find comfort in it because i'm like all right well if nothing matters and the only thing that really matters is how we treat each other and so that's the only thing that matters none of this other shit does because we're all just on a, in a dust moat suspended on a sunbeam or as they say in planet of the apes <laughs> one screen planet is now dead yeah so meaningless well on that lovely uplifting note um do we want to give this movie a rating out of five sounds like a plan all right terry how many holy fallouts out of five do you give beneath the planet of the apes you know i I, this movie i think is even though i really liked it it's really it's kind of messy um there's a lot there's a lot going on in it um i I found most of the characters kind of insufferable and the first half I was kind of, I was kind of bored with it, 
just because it felt kind of like a rehash of the first one in some in some regards. But I'll tell you what, halfway through the movie, when it when it flips and I start to see like the themes that are being discussed here and the way that um the just the the mindset of this film, I it really kind of started to click for me. And talking about it now, I, I it even like makes me appreciate it even more. Um, I think I probably. I think I'd probably give this uh three and a half um holy fallouts. Um and that might 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 be a four, but I think I'm thinking oh, three and a half. Wow. Yeah. What about you, Mary Beth? I was gonna say three. Um okay. because I I was thinking actually thinking about this while I was watching it, because I was like, oh, this movie is like kind of run of the mill sci-fi, like it's I like the prosthetics, blah blah blah, but then the, the tone shift it like almost completely wiped my mind of what happened beforehand. It feels like a totally different movie and it's so much darker than I could have ever expected. And again, I'm watching this with like almost no familiarity with the franchise. And so it was really surprising in a, in an amazing way to see this nihilistic yet kind of cheesy yet really fascinating and complex film about people dressed as apes. <laughs> yeah. make such a poignant and intense commentary on our obsession with war and colonialism so yeah i'm gonna but and then i can't you know i still remember the beginning and it drags a little bit and the characters are not like the two lead men aren't my favorite but i still really appreciate it for all the risks it took and the things it was trying to say in a really cool really cool and unique way so this three Holy fallouts out of five for me. Sean? It's a three. Well, yeah, it, it takes a long road to a glorious destination. Um, <laughs> the, the, the first, I, I agree 100% that the first 20 minutes of that movie are, are slow. They're a little turgid. Um, but uh, I would give it a, a general four out of five personally. And so as a, the aggregator and the decider, I'm saying it's a four. It's a four. There you go. All four right. holy fallouts out of five. Damn you. Damn dirty apes. I, I love it. I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. He can talk. He can talk. Sorry, I'm, I'm going back to the Going to the song. I, can, I know. I can feel it. I can sing. <laughs> uh, oh, Lord. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us to talk about Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Where can the listeners find you? And what do you have that you want to share? Um, you can find me on Instagram at the Sean Keller and uh, on Twitter at underscore Sean Keller. Um, so check me out there or on Bandcamp. Uh, I think I'm Sean Keller number two, which is fucked up. I need to find my uh, other and eliminate him. Your, your um, doppelganger yeah, eliminate him? We, we will meet. There, there, can, there can be only one. Um, there can. Uh, so you can find me on Bandcamp. Uh, you can look up uh, Killer t- Killer Sounds of Halloween or Revenge of the Killer Sounds of Halloween. Both are live. Um, the Killer Sounds of Halloween. Revenge comes out tomorrow, but the first three songs are up if you want to pre-order now. And uh, yeah, that, that's that's where you can find me. That's what I got. Awesome. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Beneath the Planet of the Apes or any of the films in the Planet of the Apes franchise? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gailey Dreadful. And of course, keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Bronald for our 
artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. <laughs> Thanks to everyone <laughs> for listening. Stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>